Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Eugene Rogan, and as director of the Middle East Centre, it's a tremendous pleasure to welcome you all to the George Antonius Memorial Lecture. This lecture series, as most of you will know, dates back to 1976, initiated with a lecture from the late George Macdesey. And since that inaugural lecture, we have attracted some of the greatest minds in Middle Eastern studies from the widest range of disciplines and of professional backgrounds, including our own Albert Hurani, Ibrahim Abu Lughod, for Islamic art, Oleg Grabar, among journalists, Eric Rouleau, the great Edward Said, among diplomats, Anthony Parsons, Lebanese pressman, Rassan Twaini, our very dear Zaha Hadid, who designed the building we are in tonight, and last year, of course, Noam Chomsky. Now in its 42nd year, the Antonius remains the culminating event of the academic year for the Middle East Center. It brings together all of the positive dynamics that have shaped our year, and it always stands as something of a family gathering, where we welcome back current students, past students, past friends, alumni. The thing is that over the course of 42 years, the composition of that family does change. It's always added to, which is the joy of regeneration, but there are also those that we lose and that we miss. And without going into necrology, I do have to bring the passing of Soraya Antonius to this year's lecture, just because Soraya Antonius, daughter of George Antonius, had been such a formative influence right through the life of the lecture series. She came to so many of these lectures, and having Soraya with us was always a special occasion that somehow tied the bonds of friendship that led to the origins of the series and the friendship between George Scanlon, the late George Scanlon, we celebrated three Antoniuses ago, two Antoniuses ago, um, with Katie Antonius, the widow of George, mother of Soraya, and Soraya herself. Soraya passed away in Cyprus on the 12th of January, 2017, and she remembered the Middle East Center very generously in her estate. We now have her library, which has been integrated into the Middle East Center Library with many of the books of her late father, George Antonius, among them inscribed with his name on the front cover. They're a treasure that we are so pleased to have. We will, in the coming summer months, be hanging a number of paintings that she left to the Middle East Center as another ongoing memory of Soraya Antonius here. She left us a collection of Palestinian dresses that we are still trying to work out the best way of preserving and making available to those who will appreciate them. She's left us a link to Birzeit University through a scholarship fund that she wanted us to establish in her late father's name. She actually wants it to go to Birzeit, but she's waiting for Palestine to get recognized independence by the United Nations. Until then, she wants us to keep it in trust. But, Soraya, if you're listening, I promise we're using our best efforts to get that recognition of Palestinian statehood to see the funds go to Birzeit. In the meanwhile, we hope that these funds will be sufficient for us to enable a student of Birzeit to come to Oxford for a master's program each year. So this will be another exciting way to remember the Antonius link. We also have a family connection to Soraya through her goddaughter, Nadia van Malsen, who is not able to be with us this year, but Nadia, who is an alumnus of our community, where her master's and her doctorate, uh, Soraya's goddaughter, will be keeping that torch going in years to come. So there is a sense of the passing on from one generation to the next, but the Antonius tradition thrives and continues to serve the function for which it was originally set, to bring great thinkers to our community, to uphold the bonds that bind us, 
and the interests that have driven us as an intellectual community around the study of the modern Middle East in all of its aspects. And towards that end, it is such a pleasure to welcome Sir Jeremy Greenstock as the 42nd George Antonius Memorial Lecturer. As noted in his recent book, Sir Jeremy's diplomatic career began and ended in the Middle East. His first introduction came in the summer of 1970, when, as a young diplomat, he was dispatched to the Center for um, Middle East and Arabic Studies in Shemla, in Lebanon, to master the Arabic language. In that regard, it is a great pleasure to have Sir James Craig with us tonight, who, of course, embodies the values of Mikas and the rigor with which Arabic language and culture was taught. Indeed, arguably for the 18 months you spent at Shemla, the streets of Beirut and even the mountain village itself must have been as important a school for young diplomats as the classrooms in the Mikas itself. The summer of 1917 was a very hot summer indeed, when Palestinians and Jordanians clashed in an event known as Black September, and where the politics of the region, driven by justice for the Palestinian cause and the um, ongoing appeal of Arab nationalism, must have given young British diplomats a great deal to think about and write home about. It was in the aftermath of 18 months that Sir Jeremy took his first posting to Dubai, recently part of a newly independent United Arab Emirates, where he had the privilege of serving as one of the last crucial court justices. Is that accurate? For his impartial justice, he was celebrated. And then, of course, beyond Dubai, uh, Sir Jeremy served in the British Embassy in Saudi Arabia. Again, I just learned, under the stewardship of Sir James Craig. But it was in Iraq that Sir Jeremy made his name. First, as the permanent representative of the United Kingdom to the United Nations between the years 1998 to 2003, which, of course, coincided with those tense and divisive debates about the decision to go to war in Iraq. And then subsequently, just as he thought it was suitable time to retire, to take up a new posting as the UK Special Representative for Iraq starting in September 2003, where he worked alongside American officials of the Bremer administration in what became known as the Green Zone. These experiences have been captured in Sir Jeremy's captivating book, Iraq, The Cost of War, published in 2016 after more than a decade's delay for reasons of state. These are also the subject of tonight's lecture, the Iraq invasion and aftermath lessons for Arab world reform. Would you please join me in giving a warm welcome to Sir Jeremy Greenstock. Eugene, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great privilege for me to be standing here as the 42nd George Antonius lecturer with my own watch in front of me to make sure I stick to time. George Antonius started this subject off, I think, with his book, The Arab Awakening, in 1938. It is as ironic to think that his awakening led to not very much, as it turned out, against the expectations of the Arab world, just as the Arab awakening of 2011 has led us so far to the same conclusions. And we must get in to some of these issues. I'm going to talk about the Iraq invasion and its aftermath a bit. I'm going to talk about the Arab Spring a bit. But what I really like to get into, and I will, I hope, with my chair's permission, get into question and answer shortly before six o'clock, 
and we'll go on, I hope, till 6.15 or so with that discussion, talk about the prospects for reform in the Arab world seen through the prism of the invasion of Iraq and what has happened subsequently. And as a set of milestones through that discussion, let me say what my principal messages are going to be and then try and give you the arguments that stand behind them. Firstly, the Iraq invasion was a catalytic intervention into the stagnation of Arab authoritarianism of its era, but it failed to replace that authoritarianism with anything more liberal, more stable, or more fulfilling of people's expectations. Secondly, the Arab Spring, arising on the whole without outside intervention, with the exception perhaps of Libya, has followed a similar route. It has not fulfilled the expectations of the peoples of the countries where the regimes changed. Thirdly, and more provocatively, I'm saying that the characteristics of most countries of the region, especially the Arab states, militate against progressive reform and collective solutions. And finally, that the global context is not one likely to provide outside solutions to these challenges. What about the lessons from Iraq? And there are many side issues that we could get into. My book, in particular, takes as a central theme what it's like to work with the Americans on a project of this sort from the British perspective and takes as its main skeleton the capacity or lack of it of the Americans to build a nation out of a destructive start in removing a regime. And some of the lessons from Iraq have to be lessons about intervention in the modern world in another country by particularly a Western state more generally. First of all, you have to get the mission right. You have to have the resources to meet the objectives of the intervention. If you're removing a regime, you must have some idea based on the ground of who's going to replace that regime from amongst the people of the territory you're entering. You must make sure that you act not just legally, but also legitimately, a distinction I make in my book, and well, I will explain it further in this lecture. But without legitimacy in international affairs, you will lack international support, and that can be absolutely crucial to the success of the endeavour. You need to place a high priority on security, and you need to make sure that the material consequences for the people of the territory you are intervening in are positive and not negative. Those are general lessons about interventions, and you can see how immediately each of you in this room can apply them to Iraq. To take the mission as an example, what mission did George W. Bush set General Tommy Franks in 2002 when he was, as Commander CENTCOM, asked to prepare the invasion of Iraq? In effect, he asked him to remove Saddam Hussein as the ruler of Iraq and then 
hand over the changed Iraq to the Iraqis to do what they would wish to do with that opportunity. That was the wrong mission, as was very well understood in the American State Department under Secretary of State Colin Powell. The mission should have been to create a secure and stable Iraq without Saddam Hussein or his henchmen in it. And that is a different mission and points to one of the priorities that I gave you about intervention, which is that security comes first. And if you leave, lose control of security, you will be in immense trouble on everything else. Secondly, the resources had to be sufficient for the job. Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defence in the George Bush administration, was in charge of the operation, not the State Department. He refused to allow the text of the Future of Iraq project written in the State Department in the late months of 2002 and early months of 2003 to enter the Pentagon or be read in the Pentagon, a paper which explained quite clearly how difficult it would be to take over the state of Iraq after Saddam Hussein and his hierarchy had been removed. And when at a particular point in the developing politics leading up to the invasion of Iraq, Colin Powell said to President Bush, if you break it, you own it. George Bush never asked him what he meant and merely said, thank you, Mr. Secretary, I have heard you. And when I, I don't put this in the book, but when I went to see Colin Powell three years later, uh, after the invasion of Iraq, that still rankled in the Secretary's mind as something that he felt the President should not have let him down on. You will remember, many of you, that prior to the invasion, a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Washington, General Shinseki, had, with his Lebanese background, had said, it will need 500,000 troops to pacify Iraq after the removal of the regime and to lead it to a new state. And he was ridiculed by the Pentagon, particularly by Deputy Secretary Paul Wolfowitz, because Donald Rumsfeld wished to show that the invasion and the aftermath of Iraq could be done with fewer resources than people expected. An element of hubris in that decision which led to its nemesis. On finding a new leader, you will remember the stories about the Pentagon favouring Ahmed Chalabi and the State Department and the CIA favouring Ayad Alawi as the people most likely to be able to take over a free and increasingly prosperous and stable Iraq. Neither of them were able to do so. And it should have been quite clear to anybody who had any experience of taking over and leading a country out of one period into another, that those who have not borne the heat and burden of the revolution against the ousted leader will not get credit politically within that country. Dissidents are not the people to bring in as leaders for the new era. 
And so it proved. Not only were Ahmed Chalabi and Ayad Alawi and others in contention with each other, neither of them in subsequent elections ever proved to be able to command a majority in the Iraqi assembly. Ayad Alawi did a lot better than Ahmed Chalabi, who never exceeded 1% in any election that he stood for of the electorate. A new leader or a new coalition to take over was never discovered, never revealed, never found, even in the months after the invasion was over. As for legitimacy, I think that the Americans and the British, with some help from me, failed to establish any clear legitimacy, that is, the weight of international opinion supporting the project and its basis uh, from amongst the UN Security Council or members of the international community. This meant that even though the British were prepared to be the first ally on Iraq and many other allies followed the British lead, which was why the Americans in the end were so keen that the British should be there, did not actually gather the strength of international support that was necessary for a project of this difficulty and this controversial nature. Iraq is a violent country. Its history is violent, and so it has proved in the years following the Iraq invasion. The Egyptian permanent representative in New York at the time of the invasion, Ahmed Abulhait, uh, later Foreign Minister of Egypt and now Secretary General of the Arab League, pulled me aside in the main corridor of the UN building and said, do you people know what you are doing? These people are violent and they will show it on the streets once you are responsible for security in Iraq. And although I reported that, it didn't get much residence in my government back home and I don't think was passed on to the Americans at the time. It is a country also of division, which the American uh, leadership of the Coalition Provisional Authority didn't understand at the beginning. But strangely, given the history of Iraqi divisions between Sunni and Shia, between Arabs and Kurds, between tribes, between sects, the majority of Iraqis as a whole then in 2003-04, and I believe now in 2017, want a unified country under a single government within the borders that are established by the state of Iraq at the United Nations. And Ayatollah Sistani, for one, has constantly spoken up for the freedom of the people of Iraq, unified within one territory, and his message has been, I think, the most consistent and most important for Iraq during this whole period, even while his political influence has gradually faded. There are other lessons that we learned. How important it was for the political officers of the U.S. Army to work in the various parts uh, of a divided nation after the invasion, as much as the military. How divided the Americans were within their own machine, not just between civilians and military, but between different parts of the military and different parts of the political mechanism. Very particularly, we learnt 
how when a vacuum is formed, when you remove a leader or a regime from a political position in the country, how that vacuum is quickly filled, first of all, by the malign and not by the benign. We've seen that in Yugoslavia. We've seen that in the collapse of the Soviet Union. We've seen that in Sudan. Why can't politicians understand that they are taking an immense risk in creating a vacuum because that vacuum is something they are not going to be able to control unless they have massive resources on the ground because the bad move quicker than the good being better motivated than the good or more, I should say, more strongly motivated than the good. Out of that came insurgents, criminals, terrorists, militias of one sort or another, which are still plaguing the security theatre in Iraq. The lessons will be written for a long time to come, but were perhaps as well expressed and covered in the congressional inquiry in Washington into the invasion of Iraq and its aftermath, as by any other document. So if historians want to go back as the basis for a critique of what happened on the American side, then the congressional investigation of 2005-06 is as good as anywhere. You have, of course, you faithful readers of academic treatises in this room, the 2.6 million words of Chilcot to keep you occupied from last year through until you eventually put your bedside book aside. But the outcome from Chilcot was, I think, very clear in its bare bones on working with the Americans, on seeking a not just a legal but a legitimate basis for whatever you want to do with intervention, for, on the British side, a prime minister bringing the collective machinery of government into a very difficult adventure because that gives you more legitimacy in the domestic context and in understanding what your lawyers are telling you when they tell you this may be legal but this is not safe in law, which is what Peter Goldsmith, the Attorney General, actually said to the Cabinet and to the Prime Minister in his two depositions, one before and one after the invasion had been announced as starting. There are other features, of course, in the subsequent history of Iraq over the last 14 years. The corruption, the incompetence, the divisions, and the rise in the ungoverned space which became part of the vacuum of terrorist groups such as al-Qaeda and the Islamic State which we have not been able to put back uh, in the box up to now. And we can come uh, to that later when we look at the current state uh, of the Arab world. So let me turn now to the Arab Spring from 2011 onwards. I'm not a historian, and I'm not going to try and beat historians at their own game. There are too many good ones in this room for me to risk that particular enterprise, but I do like looking at the political consequences of things that happen and at the political philosophies behind the leaderships, the movers and shakers who are getting involved in great events. 
You remember what happened in 2010-11 uh, after Mohamed Bouazizi set himself alight on a Tunisian street in November 2010, leading to the fall in particular uh, of Mubarak's dynasty in Cairo in February 2011, uh, and what happened in Tunisia, uh, and later Libya, uh, and of course Syria. I'm not going to go through those events. I want to draw one or two points from them, because the whole Arab Spring has illustrated again what the Iraq invasion illustrated, that replacing bad regimes with something better is a very difficult enterprise. You know, we're beginning, beginning to find the truth of that statement, how difficult it is to improve on a bad regime once it's removed, even in our democratic context. Democracies are good at getting rid of bad regimes, bad governments, peacefully, but are they good at replacing them with better ones? That is an en passant question about our current condition, <laughs> which I shall leave hanging there. But democracies and autocracies are not necessarily different in that respect if you go beyond the norms of a collective approach in finding a consensus for government within the people, whatever mechanism of politics you're following. Why did the Arab Spring not go right? Well, it created vacuums, and vacuums cause trouble. That ungoverned space was created by the Iraq invasion and by the 2011 regime changes in the Sahara, in the desert within Egypt itself, in the Sinai Desert, within Syria, across very different parts of Syria, within the north and west of Iraq, in the desert of Anbar, and in certain towns where the malign forces were able to take over the leadership of small regions in order to create their new politics. I don't like gracing it with the name of caliphate, because that is obviously a political and historical contortion. But the, the allowing of ungoverned space to materialize was a very serious part of the collapse of that part of the Middle East. There was also, after the three regimes were removed in Cairo, Tunis and Tripoli, no central point around which the new state could group. Baghdad, perhaps, was clearly the centre and remains the centre of whatever Iraq chooses to be, but Cairo did not hold the centre again, the easily the biggest and most powerful conurbation in Egypt, did not hold all the groups concerned together. The desert and the Delta were just as important in many ways for the collapse of consensus within the Egyptian developments. I remember saying to the Iraqi governing council uh, on my last day there in March 2004, because I often used the metaphor of the two great rivers flowing through Iraq, the Tigris and the Euphrates, to keep their morale up. And I said when I left, you are the country of the two great rivers, but what you've created in your politics over the past 
last few months is a load of little streams. You cannot afford just to stay in your streams. A country as large as, as, large as yours has to change streams into rivers and to start flowing together if you are to achieve the kind of stability that you need. And that brings home, in all these instances, the importance of security. It is the most important thing to get right as soon as there is uncertainty or a change of regime or an insurgency. And the importance of security was not made specific by the American uh, team in the invasion and was not considered seriously enough by those who were removing regimes in Egypt, in Libya, in Tunisia, and in Syria. And there is behind that, I think, a comment that needs to be made about the importance of the army in Arab tradition, in Arab history, and in Arab, Arab politics. And I will come to a little bit of a conclusion uh, at the end of my talk uh, when I come to mention again the importance of the army in the Arab construct. Corruption, of course, has played a role. The formation of military-industrial complexes like the IRGC in Iran, but it's happening in Egypt, it's happening, it has happened for a long time in Syria, it was the case in Libya, that those who control the army also control the money, and that all becomes corrupt. And I think something else we've seen over the past few years since the Arab Spring, but it goes way back into history, the difficulty in this region of creating coalitions. Because of that tendency to create small streams and not to follow the more collective answer of great movements coming together to control parliament or control the politics of the time, coalition has been very difficult to form uh, inside Iraq, inside Egypt, inside Libya, and especially inside Syria since the events of change. I think, as George Antonius has partly shown in his writings, this goes well back into history and is part of the heritage of the Arab world from a remarkable beginning in the early medieval times through to the great caliphates in Damascus, Baghdad and Cairo, and then on gradually into a fading record of success under the Ottomans, into the modern era, through the world wars, into colonialism, and even when the Arab nations took back their own responsibility for affairs post the colonial era in the 1960s onwards, it was authoritarianism that took up the uh, route rather than a collective approach. In other words, individuals and armies became more important than institutions. The middle class has never been allowed to develop in the Arab world. They've always needed a strong leadership, a strong army to produce stability for that to happen. And if you add to that the difficult effects of social and technological change, a more aware people, people understanding what has happened in other places, where they've been left behind, you have electorates and peoples who are demanding things that their people cannot deliver. Let's go through, therefore, the prospects for real reform 
in the Middle East, now these events have happened. There's one country since the Arab Spring that has tried with some success to reform its constitution uh, and to produce a collective answer that will bring different parties together and make people understand that the nation is more important than smaller parts of it, and that is Tunisia. I got involved myself with the organization Forward Thinking, uh, a tiny little NGO in London which has done more to create cross-border and cross-party talking in the Middle East than any other NGO in recent history. Uh, we helped the Tunisians rewrite their constitution five years ago, and I chaired the first meeting between the two political leaders, Ganoushi and Esebsi, who had not been talking to each other about the new constitution in Tunisia. And they have struggled since then in spite of the attacks of terrorists, in spite of the difficulties of the economy, to form something new because they understood that a collective approach was more important than a sectarian one. But elsewhere, security, the institutions, the economy have not been the priority in the states that we're talking about. There is, of course, a difference between monarchies and republics in this respect. The monarchies of the Gulf, and to include Jordan and Morocco, have had a more successful time in trying to establish their new legitimacy after the Arab Spring than have the republics of the Arab world. And if you look at what uh, the Saudi royal family under King Salman is trying to do at this moment with a fairly impulsive leadership coming out of Mohammed bin Salman, the deputy crown prince, his Vision 2030 is a remarkable new document for the Arab world in this era. The mix of focus on politics and the economy is a new one for Saudi Arabia. Politics, of course, always trumping the economy when it comes to any sense of crisis. And so it will be in Saudi Arabia as these things play out. But the youth of the population makes it essential that the leaderships in countries like these across the Gulf and in Jordan and Morocco understand the importance of making material life better for the next generation, for the young generation coming through. More than half the Saudi population being under 26 at this moment, a remarkable demography, it will not be possible to stay still for this country without some reform. And yet that reform will be resisted by the Conservatives for the same reasons that it's resisted in Iran and indeed in China, because too much transparency, too much openness, too much liberal thinking in politics as opposed to economics will disturb the status quo for the regimes in those places. And that will be something the Saudis and the Gulf uh, Emirates will have to face up to. Egypt, of course, has taken a different course, tried the experiment, supported by the West for a while, with the Muslim Brethren under President Morsi. It failed through a counter-coup, and that was the army coming back because the people of a country, in the end, will be prepared to lose some of their freedom for stability to come back. And that is something that the Arab world is finding it very difficult 
to move out from. I said that one of my conclusions was going to be that the outside world was not going to be able to produce a collective solution from the outside that would help these countries develop a new status in the modern world. And that's for two principal reasons. One of them is that in a globalized world where there is a strong reaction of identity politics against that globalization, people do not want to take risks with their local identity. And localization has become a more powerful force than multinationalism or collective thinking internationally. Within the Arab world, which itself is divided into many tribes, sects, subnations, uh, as well as nations, the instinct to go with the local, to go with the little stream, is still more powerful than the instinct to find national consensus and a coalition. In addition to that, the modern world is extremely hard to govern, with the freedom of the individual sapping energy out of governments on the inside, while global thinking and cross-border openness is sapping the simple business of government on the outside. Government is so difficult that peoples are losing faith in their own governments everywhere, and it's going to be extraordinarily hard for Arab governments that only have partial loyalty from their own populations to re-establish the art of governing when everybody is finding it so difficult. This brings protest into the fore everywhere. Our own political events are partly caused by a feeling of protest that what is happening now is not acceptable in certain parts of the population. And that leads in countries where the democratic system is not absolutely firmly established to a tendency towards authoritarianism. As you see most recently in Turkey, as well as in Russia and China and Iran, where you would expect it, but in Turkey that move from Ataturk's secular democratic state that we're witnessing now towards an authoritarian, more religious state is a sign that authoritarianism is beginning to appeal to majorities, even though it's a divisive idea, more than the concept of maintaining secularity, liber liberalness and democracy. So in all of this, I find the Middle East not well-placed for reform. Security is one part of the problem that the army gets priority, but I have to end asking, I think, this audience a question about religion in the Middle East. Whether these two institutional bedrocks for political systems, security, the army, if you like, and religion, is enough for a modern state and a growing economy. I'd like to commend to you, because this is a very complex and difficult subject, a, an article that's just been written by Sir John Jenkins, the former ambassador in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, who led that study on the Muslim Brethren in London two years ago, 
which has appeared in Policy Exchange this week, the 12th of June, entitled A State of Extremes. A state uh, being a pun on the condition and the nation. And he explains in very academic but very interesting language why it is that Islam has taken on a violent tone to it in this generation and how that will be extraordinarily difficult for the Middle East to overcome unless the systems of government in each of the countries we're talking about begin to realize how closely they need to gather the consensus of their people in order to be governed without this kind of outside or malign influence taking over. He asks whether a state can be constructed along secular lines. Uh, as he says, liberal ex exceptionalism is grounded above all in security and the secular rule of law. And if the secular rule of law is not the dominant concept, then can liberality coexist with the forceful guidance of Islamic teaching? Eugene, I would be very interested if the Middle East Centre wanted to take up that question and study whether this was a forceful factor in current Middle East politics and whether the other pressures on peoples and on governments to form an economically performing and successful state was being undermined in this region, in these Arab countries, by the effect of religion, the response of people to religion, as it mixes with politics. I think other studies have been done elsewhere, but I haven't yet seen a satisfactory outcome that has convinced me that people have cottoned on to the real effect of the mix of religion and politics in the countries we're talking about. I think I will stop there because although I've given a fairly pessimistic uh, account of where the Middle East is going, I think for good reasons, uh, we should start in the discussion to look for silver linings in all of this, perhaps stepping stones out of the darker picture that I've been painting, if only governments could be persuaded to focus on economic growth, on jobs and value, should we call it karama, for the younger generation, on enlightened leadership, not regressive leadership, and on a consensus between what's happening domestically in these countries and what we can bring from outside to help them grow into the modern era as we failed to do from the Balfour Declaration onwards. Thank you very much.